QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Maxine Brown. Maxine is the Centre Manager at QUT's Centre for Justice. I'll let her introduce the rest of her backstory, as she and Jody have a great discussion about her work history, as well as the wider benefits of working in the higher education sector, what it's like to be a professional staff member, and the importance of making good connections everywhere you go. Without any further ado, Maxine Brown. Welcome to How to Academia. Who the heck are you? Thank you for having me, Jodie. I am Maxine Brown, and I am the Centre Manager, QUT Centre for Justice. We are hosted by the School of Justice and sit in the Faculty of Creative Industries, Education, Social Justice, and we're a Tier 1 Research Centre at QUT. But I've been at QUT for 12 years. Before I was a Centre Manager, I was the Research Services Manager in the Faculty of Law. Before that, I was the Senior Research Services Officer in the Faculty of Law, so that was my time at QUT. But I worked at lots of universities and done lots of things. How did you end up working at universities? Well, that is a great question. It wasn't actually my career choice. So many moons ago, when I finished university, the first time I finished university, my first degree, back in 1980-something, I was looking for a job and I and I did get a job in a, I was like working in bookkeeping in a factory or something and it was a terrible job and I knew it was a terrible job. In fact, I used to cry every Wednesday. It was so awful. Why Wednesdays? I don't know. I think it just took a week for it to build up about how awful my life was at work and then Wednesday nights seemed to be the night. Oh, Maxine, I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, I soon realised, I guess I was about 22 at the time and I realised that was, you know, I think I was had a little more to offer than bookkeeping mm. in a horrible nail factory. And so I was seeking, looking for a job and uh, University of Queensland, I got a job there as the expenditure officer because I had a bit of a finance background. Uh, my first degree was an arts degree. So you, know, you just find a job that you get some, just get a job. Yeah. And so I was the expenditure officer and that was in pre-computer days. And we used to Whoa. trawl through these big paper things and that was kind of fun. And then I went on and got a job after that, a bit of a higher level job as a revenue officer. Used to look after all the student loans at University of Queensland. And from there I moved on. So, you know, you're always looking for a slightly better job. And I went over to Griffith University after that and I ended up in finance in the Faculty of Asian and International Studies there. And there's been a lot of jobs since then in universities. I did have seven years out of universities. I didn't I did have a little break in the middle when my daughter was born. I went back and retrained as a teacher. Oh. And I did seven years as secondary school teacher. Teaching. Uh, senior business, legal studies, 
history. So that sort of stuff. What prompted that? Well, I'd always, when I, when I went to university the first time, so I'd left school in 1980 and went to university, I started out doing, because uh, in those days, of course, you just do whatever course you teach school. There were TE schools in those days. And I got a really good TE score. So I started out in occupational therapy. But I'm a humanities and social science person. Mm. I'm really bad at science. Well, mm. I don't know. Occupational therapy has a lot of science. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bad idea. So anyway, I'd sort of changed courses and I thought about teaching. And I think I didn't do it because my mother thought it was a good idea. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, she told me I should be a teacher or a social worker. And so, of course, I was going to do neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward, I've got this child and I'm working fairly long hours and I thought, oh, I've needed a bit of a break. I'd done, I'd just finished a massive job where I was working about 70 hours a week. I was the director of students at the Australian Defence Force Academy, which is a faculty of UNSW. Mm. It had been an enormous job and I was pretty burned out. So we were moving as a family, moving to Darwin. So I said to my husband, can I, do you think I can take one year out from work and go and retrain and he was like all for that and I just thought well teaching would be good because I'm gonna this child's gonna have to go to school at some point and teachers have better work hours and it's a bit of a friendlier thing so I went and retrained I went to Charles Darwin University and did teaching and ended up doing that for seven years what brought you back into the university sector so I was working in in Darwin I was working in this the public system, which was pretty good gig up there, really loved it. I love being in the classroom, yeah. love teaching, really love teaching. But when I came back to Brisbane, it was hard. I couldn't get back into the I couldn't get into the state system because it's quite hard. And what they want to do is just give you um, contracts during yeah. term, and then they terminate the contract. You don't get paid over holidays, and then they give you another contract, and it's a lot to it. So I got a job in a private school. Um, but private schools get their pound of flesh and they also, in Queensland, you contact a lot more than I was contacting mm. in Darwin, but also in private schools you're doing uh, sports on Saturdays and a lot more things than you're asked to do in the state system. And they were making me teach things like maths. Oh, God. Well, maths is not in my... I don't teach maths. I might do business, but business and maths are actually different. Different things, And yeah. so the hours were not actually as good because I was doing so much prep and so many other things. And also, universities are good employers. You know, they pay well and there's a structure to move forward to. You can get ahead and get better jobs and those sorts of things. So I decided I would stop teaching and I would come back into the sector and see if I could get ahead a little bit and... So I ended up back at QUT. Was that a hard decision? Oh, I think I was really over I wasn't over the teaching. I loved the kids. Really loved being in the classroom. But management of schools is done by teachers who no longer teach. Mm. So they don't have management qualifications. I was more qualified than them mm. to be managing things. And I found that a lot of decisions that managers and schools make impact on the teacher in the classroom at the coalface just absolutely directly and make it quite difficult to be an effective teacher and I think I've been doing that for quite a few years and I couldn't see a lot of advancement and I'd left the private school I was working in and I was doing contracts in other schools some public schools and so on and it was a bit tenuous when you've got financial obligations that sort of chasing contract after contract was a bit tenuous so it was you know time to go back to what I knew I could get ahead in and I'd had quite senior jobs in in the past. We're going to come back and unpack this a bit further, but before we do that, 
What does it mean to be the centre manager for the C for J? That is an excellent question. I don't know. No, <laughs> that's not quite true. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I don't know either, Maxine. We'll give it a bit of a bill. So the Tier 1 Research Centres, there's 11 of them currently, and they're quite new organisational structures. So the first ones started in 2020, right and but C4J didn't get up until August 2020 and I came on as the manager in November amidst a major university restructure anyway. Can we pause for a moment there? We can. Explain to us what it means to be a tier one research centre. So a tier one research centre is a group, a collection of academic work or research under a whatever banner. In our case, it's a social justice think tank and looked across the university and found academics not just in justice but in other disciplines and we bring them together under a set of strategic priorities based in that particular sort of focus group and these there's others like biomedical technologies or health okay. transformation or whatever. And the tier ones are supposed to be the jewels in the crown of QUT and so they use them for marketing purposes to say these this is what we do at QUT. Okay. So the managers of those centres fundamentally are the touch points for that grouping of academics who might spread across, in our case, four faculties, eight schools, to try to be drawn together to do multidisciplinary, cross-disciplinary or transdisciplinary research. And we try to support those endeavours in a whole lot of things. So we do a lot of comms. We have a website trying to showcase the expertise and the reputation of those people. We do training for our staff and our students, research training. We put on events, we do seminars, we get budgets, so we try mm. to spend that money. We provide seed funding for their, for people's research projects. We support ECRs with funding to help enhance their careers. Pretty much, you name it, we'll try and support it in that really broad research umbrella. So back to what is your role then? So my role is to try and run that show. So I have a director and obviously the buck stops with her. It is her responsibility to run that. But I operationalise the strategic plan for the centre. So the centre sets up their strategic plan. We know what the strategic objectives are. I know who the people are. And then we try and operationalise that. I feel like really I often think I'm the jack of all trades, master of none. I look after the finance, I help them appoint their research assistants, I roll out the funding programs, we assess those. We have governance, we have steering committees and executive committees in the centre. So universities, as you know, are incredibly bureaucratic and you have to live within that bureaucracy and I always feel like I facilitate the nexus between our members, the centre and the university bureaucracy to achieve these strategic objectives. So as, as an academic, I sit here and I look at someone like you and I think, oh, I have a problem that my academic brain can't fix. Let me talk to Maxine. Maxine will be able to <laughs> fix that. Is that the summary of, I guess, what you do? Yep, that's exactly what I do. So at one side, I'm setting up all these lovely governance structures and you, Jody, sitting there, you'll see once a fortnight, you'll get my bulletin and I'll tell you there's these funding opportunities and there's money for this and there's money for that and here's an interesting thing we found and so on. But fundamentally, that's what I do, is I support the academics to achieve their research goals, which hopefully are in alignment with the centre's research goals. So this puts you, I guess, in this 
space of what we would not call academic staff, but we'd call professional staff. What does it mean to be a member of professional staff at QUT? Professional staff make up more, there are more professional staff at QUT than academic staff. To be in the professional staff, we're not the main game. So the main game of the university is teaching and research. That's what it's here to do, fundamentally. And professional staff, by and large, don't do either of those things. But what they do is they support the academics in the academic, the university endeavour, teaching or research. But of course, professional staff are so wide and varied. So there's people like me working in research, and there's lots of other roles in research. There's people in high queue. There's learning support, the security guards, the the cleaners. They're all professional mm. staff. And so the way I see the professional staff is we are supporting the main game. And years ago when I was running a, a very large team at Australian Defence Force Academy, and I used to say to the team, we are never going to be the ones that encourage or get recruit the student. They're not coming here because of us. But if we do a terrible job, mm. we can make them leave that we can, we can affect that. Because if a student has a terrible experience with a professional staff member in trying to sort out their enrolment or you know, their study plan or whatever, that's complex and difficult for the students often because of the language and, and they don't really understand. Academics often don't fully understand what that looks like. And if someone doesn't help those students, that could be enough to push a student away mm -hmm. and say, I can't do this anymore, I want nothing to do with this. So I know as an academic that I have a very specific skill set that is really quite narrow and I know that I could not exist in this gig without professional staff. And it was the same when I worked in child protection, it was the same when I worked in sexual assault. We cannot do what we need to do without professional staff. Is that the attitude you generally get as professional staff? I think I've been really fortunate that I have had that level of respect by and large throughout my career. It's been a, not always. It's on a continuum, I think. I think that there's different, there's different stakeholder groups in my view. You've got your academics, you've got your professional staff and you've got your students. And somehow they all have to interact to make this thing happen. I think on the academic front, there's a fair continuum. Mostly the academics do treat the professional staff with respect and fully understand their role in the organisation. Occasionally, there's perhaps a sense of superiority in some, but perhaps that's a personality issue anyway, or maybe the professional staff they're working with are not very good. You know, there's also on a continuum, aren't they? So I think there can be issues at a personal level, but every university I've ever been in, there is a hierarchy, mm. in my view, and academics are seen as well above the professional staff in that hierarchy. And sometimes that you see that manifest in other ways, not, not always at the person-to-person -person level, but more at the organisational level and the way they treat their professional staff. What's your thoughts on why people that are higher up the hierarchy should care about how people lower down the hierarchy are treated? You know, years ago I worked at Griffith University and in those days we had a tea room. We used to go down, 
downstairs. It was in the main building then. Used to go downstairs and have a tea lady. She used to have all the vickies and things and, and make you. There were pots of tea. It was a lovely, lovely room to sit in. Sounds amazing. It was fantastic. <laughs> I won't tell you about that before that when I was at UQ and the tea lady used to bring the trolley around. But anyway. At, You're killing me. <laughs> at Griffith, they had this tea room and I used to say, you know their most important person in this building? And this building housed the Vice-Chancellor. And yeah. the Deputy Vice-Chancellors and all of us were there. I mean, no, I'm not one of them, but, you know. I used to go down and I said, the most important person in this building is the tea lady. Mm-hmm. And the reason she was the most important is, A, the cups of tea were excellent. She knew everybody. She heard all of the information because people talk in front of people like tea ladies. Mm. And they don't think about who they're talking in front of because often they're invisible to them. But that tea lady knew everybody. Mm. And if I didn't know somebody, I might say to her, because I was always got on well, there's a tea lady, oh, do you know who does whatever type of task? And she'd say, oh, you need to go and speak to so-and-so down in that office. She knows all about that. So Amazing. Yeah. But the professional staff or people lower down often have a much broader network of contacts they know where to go they often have a much better understanding of the entire overall structure of the organization so you take someone like me and I mean I'm not that low down but I touch finance human resources marketing and comms everything there's not one bit of this university's structure that I am not required to know about because I might need it in order to make the center work Whereas the academics I work with or the higher up, they don't need to do that because they have people like me to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I can actually solve the problems. And really, I think that's what my job is. I'm a problem solver. Mm. That's what I do for people. But I do it within the boundary of research for the centre. That's that's my particular role right now. But that's what I think I do. And I think most professional staff in these broader professional staff roles are problem solvers. I mean, I don't necessarily think, you know, you have your very specific professional staff, like, you know, your tech people and whatever. Learning support's probably very specific and so on. But there's an awful lot of roles like mine that just solve problems within specific portfolios. How do people like me academics or I just think anybody really demonstrate a healthy working relationship with professional staff what would you look for as markers that's a very good question okay what do we look for well I think what we look for is I guess it's respect it's acknowledging the work that's done by others so and how does that manifest itself? I guess it's talking to them. So we're at, well, this morning we had morning tea and the professional staff were sitting with the academic staff and we were all talking about the same things because we're all just people. Mm. And it's giving people the time of day. And I have worked with, say, I'm, I'm, for example, some very old-style profs over the years. I've worked generally males. <laughs> I've worked with them over the years. And they tend not to just stop by your door on the way and say good morning. Good afternoon. How's your day going? It's the water cooler chat, or in our case, it's probably the photocopier chat. It's acknowledging that people are human and what's going on in their life, what's new. We had an executive dean uh, common to both of us some years back, and that person used to come 
to my office every Friday afternoon. They would walk the corridors just talking to people, chatting to people. And he would come to my office every Friday afternoon and he would come and sit in the chair opposite me, put his feet up on my desk. It's Friday afternoon, not many people around. And he'd say, what's new, Maxine? What do you know? What's going on in the research world? That is an excellent strategy. Yes. And, and so we would chat. And I wasn't silly enough to think he was there because he actually wanted to chat with me, Maxine. But what that was, was an acknowledgement of my position in the organisation and the information that I might hold that would also be of advantage to him. Mm. And in that chat, of course, we would chat about all sorts of things and I was human to him. He was there for a different reason, obviously. But that's a, that was a byproduct. So... I enjoyed those chats. Mm. So that that is shows respect. It was respecting my position in the organisation that I actually had an, some probably some important information for him that could make his life easier. I also think it reflects that there is a strategic advantage for the school in you holding that conversation in those positions because it generates communication. Absolutely, because he's probably not going and talking to every single person, and. My position with the school, so the School of Justice and other places I've worked is, you know, my role is to advocate, like currently my role is to advocate for my members and the centre. And just so happens in our case that 100% of the School of Justice is inside my centre. So, and I have relationships with the, with the School of Justice academics because I've been working with them for more than 12 years. Mm. And so I have those relationships. Fundamentally, I know who my client base is. And so if I get any opportunity ever to advance the cause of individuals or the school as a whole, then that's what I'm going to do because that's who my clients are. So I agree. If I can get those networks and get that respect in other spaces, that that individual, Dr Jodie Deeth, she can't get into those spaces because that's not what your request, not your job. Nor but do I, I want can, to. Nor do you want to, absolutely. But it's my job to do that and I can get into some of those spaces and I can advance either you individually because I think academia is a really, it's one of the few professions in my view that your personal advancement is tied so closely with the advancement of the institution. Mm. They're not two different things. So if we can make Jodie Deeth look better, then we make the School of Justice look better and we make QUT look better. They're just tied so closely together. But for a lot of people, that's not how it is. Work is work. And... I would just go, you know, I could just go to a different place and work and maybe do better. Mm. Whereas you're always going to be in a university, probably. And it's your reputation that makes QUT look better. So I think it's an interesting... That's why we work in an interesting world. You've talked about a lot of job changes in your career. Has that always been by choice? No. No, it's a, so professional staff, unlike academic staff, professional staff have to seek out employment opportunity and if they want to advance, they have to look for a vacant position and apply for it on a merit-based selection. Um, unlike, as you of course know, the academics are appointed and then just and seek promotion, whereas we don't do that. So we're always looking for opportunities, well, those of us that want to, not everybody mm. wants to get ahead to do secondments and, and other ways of improving ourselves through you know, service roles and more study and professional development and whatever. And that's, though many of my changes have been because I've sought other roles to advance into higher positions. But 
four times in my working life, which I think I started in 1985 in universities, and as I said, I did have that little bit of time out, but four times in there I've faced major restructures at the institutions I was at. And sometimes in a restructure, you either end up with a job that you didn't have before, and that's not your choice, that's just where you get placed, or you lose your job altogether, uh, which has also happened to me. And sometimes you just actually end up with the same job in a different organisational unit. So not my choice, but sometimes there's advantages in some of that too. I mean, sometimes you can get a bit stale and if they do a major restructure, <laughs> there's nothing like that to, to give you a bit of a push along <laughs> to see where you might like to be. Because sometimes in those restructures, you do get choices about yeah. where you should go. Not great choices, and then certainly not choices you wanted to make at the time. But, and those restructures are, are quite difficult because often they're preceded by a really long period of uncertainty. And in that period of uncertainty, you get a lot of movement. People start moving on because they know what's coming. And so you get a lot of movement. You might decide to try and change roles within there, trying to get advantage for yourself. Or makes it sound very strategic as if we're actually thinking this through. You're not because you're inside chaos or mm. a level of chaos that you're kind of trying to survive in. It's, they're, they're quite difficult. I mean, I, I don't think any restructure I've been in, well, one, I ran the restructure. That was a smaller restructure and I was actually appointed to the position to change that, to be the change agent. That was fairly stressful. Yeah. That was hugely stressful because in that particular case, I pretty much 30 people left mm. and I had to employ an entire new team. And so I had to be able to do every one of those 30 jobs because I pretty much had to train every one of those 30 people yeah, as they wow. came in. So that was quite stressful. That was a difficult one. But in that case, I was the change agent. In the other cases, I've been subject to the change. So I feel like the nature of the world, and even in academia, and there's lots of critique about this, but we're going to more short-term contracts, perhaps because there is this argument that it is cheaper. There is all sorts of crazy stuff around that. So our students, when they merge into their working lives, are going to end up having to deal with not having permanent work and having to deal with change of governments and restructures in government organisations. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say is an important skill set for people in that? Mm. I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly where I see it going. And whether that the, the sort of the philosophy behind it is true or not, it is the way of the world. I think your fundamental skill set has to be problem solver because often you're your own problem, so yeah. you have to solve your own problem. But I think you have your base education. Everybody starts out generally with some sort of generalist degree. But from that, you can't sit back. You can't. That's not it. That is not it forever. First of all, I think you need to be curious, not only curious about your particular position in your institution but curious more widely so for example you know we work in tertiary education in education and in the research sector so I'm in both of those things so I need to be curious about what's going on at the government level trying to sort of see where are the jobs going to be you know what what could be an advantage so I think you have to have that level of curiosity I think you have to accept that you're going to have to do more formal study. You're going to have to look around, whether it be certificates or longer degrees, you know, right up to doctorates. I mean, two of the tier one centre managers have doctorates. 
So doctorates are not just for academia, mm. they're for other things too. So I think you have to be willing to do more education and looking for that. Professional development, take every opportunity anybody wants to give you. And even things more broadly like, okay, you may not want to be the first aid officer, but it doesn't hurt to get the certificate. Mm. You may not want to be on the Op Health and Safety Committee really, but they'll train you to be on that. And all of those things go on your CV and make you more attractive to the next person. So lots of professional development. Do good work. You know, be good. Be good at what you're doing because people will remember you mm. and you just don't know who is going to be on the next panel that you might be going for that job. But that doesn't mean you have to be a doormat or anything. You just have to do excellent work. And if you say you're going to do something, do it. You know, don't shortcut people because they also remember that stuff. I think that you just need to be aware of what's going on around you. Oh, and the other thing I'd say is when you do leave a place, never burn your bridges because sectors are very small mm. and you will come across... I've come across the same people over and over and over again in the 30-something years I've been working in universities. I come across the people in all sorts of unexpected places. And um, if you burn your bridges, well, they'll remember that. Mm. And you just don't know when they'll be influencing your next job or next opportunity. Does that mean that you just have to take a lot of rubbish? Look, I think everybody takes a lot of rubbish. You know, I don't think there's a job out there that does not come with a lot of rubbish. I don't think you have to take it. I think you can be respectful about how you operate. I mean, I've had... I've had screaming matches with academics. I didn't start it, I'd just like to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the academics. (laughs) But I've had a few screaming matches, which is not entirely professional, but why I mention that is it's better if it would be done respectfully, the behaviour or the issue being called out and discussed and done in a respectful, professional manner. That is the much better way to do things. And you can call people out on bad behaviour and say, you know, you're actually not right. Here's the facts. Here's what you need to know about that. If you do end up in the screaming match situation, I mean, they don't happen that often. The one thing I know about that is it's really important to address it when everybody calms down is to actually address that as well. Nothing more awkward than if you've had an argument with somebody and then you just don't address it and then you both have to tiptoe around each other for the next five years. That's very uncomfortable. So, you know, it's you don't have to take it, but I would say being professional about how you call out the bad behaviour is really important. How would you go about addressing it after you've had a screaming match with someone? Well, I think you both return to your own corners, lick your wounds a little bit, and... My experience of this has been, and I don't know, this is probably just a personality thing, is it's usually me Mm. goes to that person and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'm sorry about that. Someone's not really, like, it's not, I'm sorry that I did something to you. It's just, I'm sorry that that situation escalated into that. That was not great. Here's, so so I apologise for that and here's perhaps how we can sort this out. So I think always going with some sort of solution, but really just actually dealing with the situation. I mean, you know, at home in your own personal life, it's much better to deal with. If you've had an argument, it's much better at some point to clear the air and move on. And I think most people respond to that. Mm -hmm. I hope. (laughs) I mean, sure. (laughs) 
Jodie and I have never had a <laughs> I mean, I'm willing to. I'm totes down for a screaming match. <laughs> do you get to do things that you're passionate about? Well, yes, because I'm a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a super nerd and I really like... You have to know what you like, you know. You really like... I'm sure you do because you you are in such a, a, a narrow field of research and so on. You know what you like. That's mm. your passionate about what you do, right? Absolutely. I know you are because I've talked to you about it. I actually know what I'm good at and... Sadly, I really like organising stuff. <laughs> I'm the Marie Kondo, so I don't know. I don't think that's sad. I think the world needs those people. I am not those people. I'm really thankful that you are those people. I really like organising things. I like making processes work. I like thinking of better ways to make processes work. I like being able to be across lots of things and help people out. So I like doing that. But for me, I'm really lucky because... I am a humanities and social science person, so I'm interested in the justice issues. I'm interested in the work that the people I support do. So I get to read their grant applications and their briefing papers and their blogs and whatever. I get to read that. So it broadens my own horizon anyway. Mm. So I'm reading about really interesting things. And for me, I actually think the work of the people in my centre make a difference. I think it makes a difference. So I'm really happy to be able to support that. I'm not going to be the academic, but I get to read and work with really interesting people in stuff I actually care about while organising stuff, which I also like. One of the things that strikes me in what you do is for some of our students who don't want to be academics and don't want to be policy people or don't want to be frontline workers, the professional staff route actually provides something where they get to apply their skills and their knowledge and their experience in a productive way. It's, it, universities are the most interesting places. They're full of interesting, often quirky uh, people who are incredibly passionate about what they do, whether it's we, we work in humanities and social sciences, obviously, but, you know, your scientists and whoever, they're all out there. And... They're often very driven, uh, very narrow focused. You wouldn't meet a lot of these people if you're not an academic. Academics, I know, do obviously friends together, but people like me would not normally meet these people in my general world. But they're just so fascinating, mm. and the work is fascinating. And I probably have a very broad skill set. Some of my colleagues are probably have a bit narrower. They might be more about in industry engagement, collaboration and whatever. I have a much broader skill set than that. I'm probably a much more true administrator than some people. But that's really where my skill sets have come from over the years. And you kind of make a difference and you work in an interesting place and universities are good employers. Yeah. Universities are excellent employers. They have very good paying conditions. And that's not to be sneezed at in a world that is driven by the dollar. Uh, it's nice to work in a place that obviously universities have to be driven by the dollar. They have to operate. But that's not what it feels like and what we do. It doesn't. The work we do doesn't feel like making money is at what we're supposed to be doing. Mm. How would you describe the Centre for Justice at a dinner party? Well, first I'm going to tell you how I describe what I do at a dinner party because no one understands anything about universities really. So people say, what do you do? I say, I help people apply for money they're never going to get. 
<laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> so that is the state of humanities and social sciences research in Australia right now, and that's what I do. Uh, when I and then I say, okay, where do you work? And I say, I work for the Centre of Justice, and it's a social think tank, and its whole focus is on improving the world for people, but vulnerable people. How do people respond to that? They go, that sounds cool. (laughs) 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 No, generally they say, that's very interesting. And that's when you then have to tell them, you pick out maybe some of the more interesting or colourful research and then you can talk about that. For example, your research is a very interesting research and people can connect with that because the church and the the sexual abuse has been in the news so much. Mm. So I would then say, for example, you know, I work with Dr Jodie Deeth and her interest is in this and you give a two-minute snapshot, which, you know, I get because I read some of your stuff. So then people sort of start to connect and understand that there's something there. But, yeah, fundamentally, I just help people apply for money. Why do you think it's important for us to have, I guess, that outward focus? Why can universities not just be little think hubs in themselves? I think, you know, it was it, um, I think it was a politician that said, but I can't actually remember the quote, but anyway, about, you know, we can, we can navel gaze, but what is the point of the research? We could just do it in here and not tell anybody about it. But is that going to change anything? Mm. Because I think, certainly in the social justice space, there's an element of advocacy. I mean, mm. you have to do the research, but I think many of our academics also have that other element of advocacy and what they do because they want to change things. Then if you lay on top of that, so I think that's because that they want to do that, that because that's what they believe in. But lay on top of that the current government position on research in, a, in Australian universities, which must have impact. I mean, we're all driving... That's what we're trying to do, is the research that our people do is getting it out there because we want it to have impact. And how might we get that impact? We're going to get it through policy and legislation and you know decision-making, and we want the world to be a better place for our vulnerable people in whichever group. So the government is now telling us that research cannot be navel-gazing, has to have impact. But I think in the world that we live in, uh, the people doing the research actually, by and large, want to be advocates for their research in any case. Do you think they'll always... Is social justice always going to be an issue? Absolutely. 100%. I think the scientists in our university and the government and the rest don't know that. But if you think of any of the big problems of the world, any major problem that we've got to solve, poverty, war, whatever, the, the problem is human. Mm. It's the human problem and that's what the social justice, that's what our social scientists are doing is looking at the human problem. So the social justice element of that is if you could solve the human problem and make life a little bit better for everybody, then you're probably going to cut out a whole lot of the problems along the way. I think the scientists haven't worked out that that's what's going on yet. And that's really a role for really the Centre of Justice. That's one of our roles is to try and connect with the sciences, which we do. We have great connections with uh, biomedical technology, a little bit with them, but agriculture and bioeconomy, data science, trying to connect with them to find out what they do. Because we, we are also, you know, we sit back here and don't really, we think we know what they do. But trying to connect with them and then trying to unpack the work they do and the work we do. And often we just find there's so many things that that the social element underpins so I think we're not going away we just don't get any money just right now 
Okay, so I always ask this question at the end of the podcast. I ask two questions that I always come through. Do you have a favourite theorist? <laughs> yes, I do. But not for why you would think I do. Tell me about it. Foucault. Yeah. Because I love hearing people say his name. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know anything about Foucault until I came working in school. And then I heard it everywhere. So I don't even know much about it. But I love the name. So that's not what you thought it was. You know, that's good good enough reason. What's your top tips for students surviving at university? Oh, that's an easy... A number one tip. It's a bit like the tip, be kind to your mother. It's the same tip. Be kind to the professional staff member Mm. you are interacting with because they do have a lot of the ability to make your life simpler. Yes, you've got to work with your academic 100% and you've got to do that because they are the people that are going to teach you and and know what you need to know and how you're going to pass the exam. But that professional staff member, when you go to high queue or the library or whatever, they have the ability to make your life easy or easier. I feel like that's just a great career tip for everyone. Be kind to the professional staff. <laughs> because a number of times professional staff have bailed me out of serious issues I've gotten myself into. Exactly. Is phenomenal. Exactly. Any last thoughts? I think that anybody who is students, whatever they're thinking, whether they're thinking about being academics or whatever, there are a lot of great jobs in universities that can give you an enormous career. There's plenty of room to change direction. There's quite a few universities. You don't Mm -hmm. even have to, you know, it's a full sector. It's a great place to be because the opportunities are endless. I've worked at universities in Canberra, New South Wales, Northern Territory, and three universities in southeast Queensland. So, and had you know a really quite bright uh, career and made decent money, and done really enjoyable work. So, you know, universities are a good place to work. Thank you very much, Maxine. I love your work, and I very much appreciate you and the role that you do. Oh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. This podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>